The Spirit of God is moving upon His people and He is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. sisters and welcome to a another edition of return of the historic faith i am your host pastor jeremy anderson 
and today we are going to be going right back in where we left off Wednesday with exposing Pillar of Truth Christian Church and their pastor Tyler Doka and it's actually it's not the church it's the pastor because he's the one he's the one teaching so you know we can't exactly hold the congregation responsible all the way although we you know we are responsible for who we allow to teach us so you know they're not completely off the hook however it is his beliefs and his teachings that we're going to be looking at and before I play the video that I have today I want to just break down very quickly what we're going to be seeing today Wednesday we just very very briefly looked at just one false teaching of Tyler Doka and we did not um, get into it a whole lot like as far as I did not prove that it was false from the scriptures you know I just let everyone hear what he taught and uh, you know pointed out that it was false however today we are going to I'm going to be showing you um, a video that I made that actually has clips from things that he's taught over the years it's like a at least a three or four year time period and we're gonna see that there's actually three major areas and three you might as well say three major doctrines although um, one of the three is actually more than just one doctrine because it's his belief on the end times but you're going to see that over the years um, he has changed his beliefs and what he teaches uh, for the worse I mean it's gotten worse not only does it contradict what he previously taught but it's gone from just false doctrine and false teaching to complete and utter uh, antichrist blasphemy and you'll see all that I am going to uh, go ahead and show you guys I'm gonna play the video and then after we play the video I'm going to um, talk about it with you and prove from scripture that what he's teaching is not only false but actually utter and complete blasphemy and, and heresy so without any further ado here is Tyler Doka from Pillar of Truth Christian Church
Alright. So, you're in Matthew 25, and what I'm going to be preaching about today is the unsaved on the new earth. Saved on the new earth. I title it The Structure of the New Earth, but the reason I'm calling it The Unsaved on the New Earth is because the main thing that's changing from what we previously believed about the new earth is that I don't believe that the unsaved remain in the lake of fire forever. The thing that we've never had before was the fact that I believe the unsaved are on the new earth, and I'll explain why I believe that. Um, how this sermon came to about, because I should explain this, um, when Brother Justin first explained to me that he, uh, that we were having that conversation um, on this, about the sermon that he preached, where he believed that we were wrong about the King James Bible being where people got born again, and it being about when you believe in Jesus. That's when you get born again. Um, so at that, you know, we talked about it a lot, and he explained that he was going to preach the sermon on Wednesday, and I said, let's do it, that sounds good. He showed me the scriptures where uh, he thought we were stumbling on, and how this is the, the new thing. So what that did, essentially, to our doctrine, was it took away two salvations, right? We had two separate salvations. We had believing in Jesus, and then being born again was believing in the King James Bible, which is not the case. We believe that there's only one salvation. You believe in Jesus, you're born again, you have everything, the inheritance, um, you have the kingdom that's yours but you just need to believe in the physical Jesus that died and rose again for your sins. With that said, now that that, that means that there is no separation between people who have the King James Bible and people who don't, and it also means that when the Bible says they're not salvation saved, they're second, they're saved. Everybody is included in that. With that said, if you lose your salvation, you are no longer saved. You're not you to be saved, you're not first salvation saved, you're not saved. You're, you're everything everybody else's. Um, and what came about was Justin told me that, and then a couple of days later we were having a conversation, I believe Wednesday, the, the night he was going to preach, and I said, hey, you know, now that you believe that, um, we just started talking about the new earth and what that meant for, for the kingdom. What, what did this mean for everything? And I posed an idea to him, um, like all our major revelations happen, he immediately rejected it. Just like every time we've ever had an idea that ends up working out, one of us rejects the other person's idea. He immediately rejected it, said it you know, wasn't happening. Then I started explaining some verses why I believed it, and he essentially told me that I, I can't disagree with it, I just don't see it. Um, but, like any other time, he studied it out, continued to study it, and that is what came of this sermon is a couple uh, last week called me, said he finally could see it in the Bible. It was all being showed to him. Obviously, we had both been praying about what's right. This sermon is, you know, four weeks in the making, um, you know, just reading and, and all of those things. Um, but I can't, I, you know, we had the conversation, do I not give this sermon? Because it's very, it says, then shall we say unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So one thing I want to point out about the lake of fire is it was never it was made for the devil and his angels. It's just the fact that humans began to commit sin that they needed to have their own part in the lake of fire. But um, that was never the goal. God's goal was not to put humans in the lake of fire, but they started doing what the devil did, so they end up getting uh, their portion in it. So the lake of fire was actually created for the devil and his angels. So it's, that's clear. And um, one of the reasons that you'll see later on how, how judgment occurs. So let's go to Revelation 20. These are the judgment verses. These are um, 
you know, essential in understanding how God judges people. But one thing I want to point out is when God is judging, what you'll notice is that everybody remember verses that you've read that said that essentially every idle word that men speak they will be judged on those things, or pretty much everything that you do in this life, God will judge you on. That does not really make sense if everybody's punishment is the lake of fire for an eternal amount of time. Right? Because that would mean that everybody is receiving the same judgment. Because it doesn't say the lake of fire is hotter in certain places. It doesn't say it's worse in other places. It just seems to be that the length you spend in the lake of fire is the amount of punishment that you receive. So um, let's say you have somebody who's like a serial murderer, right? They commit a lot, a lot of bad sins. And then you have somebody who's, and, and they never get saved, right? And then you have somebody who's just a normal person. They just do whatever. Um, they're not committing any grievous sins, but they're sinning, and they never get saved. Why would they both, if God is a righteous judge that does not, that does not, is not partial to anybody, why would they both be judged differently but have the same punishment? You'll see that they're judged differently, but why would they have the same punishment? That serial murder has the same exact lake of fire that this guy has, the normal guy who just committed normal sin, like lying or something like that. And you'll just get the picture of what's happening here. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And if you look here, what I believe that this is speaking about are the books of the Bible, because the group that he is speaking to, he also says, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the, the things that were written in the books according to their works. So what God is doing is he has a bunch of people in front of him that have the potential to be in the book of life. Either they were in it or their name was blotted out of it. So this group has the potential to be in the book of life. And, and notice how it says um, they were judged out of the things which were written in the books. They're judged out of these things. How well you know them, how well you follow them, those types of things. That's one group. And then the other group, and notice, he's judging each one of them based on their works. It's not like, like in the same way that we all know, even people who don't believe what we believe, that the more good work you do for God, the more reward you get. The opposite is also true. The more bad things you do against God, if you are not saved, the more punishment you get. Wouldn't that also make sense? Then verse 12 says, um, and verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in, in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works, not according to the things written in the books. You see this different, this different group? Just, just judged according to their works. They don't know the book. That's where you get the differentiation. The, the ones that he's judging first are people that have potential to be in the book of life, and they're judged according to books which means that they, have, they must have known them. The second group is just judged according to their works, and that will come up as I'm going to show you. But it's why judge people coming out of hell, remember, people are unsaved, if they're coming out of hell. The group is just judged according to their works, and that will come up in some scripture I'm going to show you. But it's why judge people coming out of hell, remember, these people are unsaved, if they're coming out of hell. Why judge a group of people based on their works if you're throwing them into a lake of fire that never ends because their punishment is all equal? It should just say, I'll take they, the, the death and hell were cast into a lake of fire. 
no judgment necessary. You're unsaved, you get the same punishment as everybody else. That's not the case. What the Bible says is that he is judged, they are judged according to their works. And it says, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Therefore, now we know there is no differentiation between people who are in the book of life and um, in, as if there's multiple salvation. Everybody who's saved is in the book of life. Everybody who's not saved is not in the book of life. Which means that if you're not saved, that includes if you were once saved and fell out of Christ, you're now not saved. And that includes somebody who never got saved in the first place. They're all not in the book of life. Everybody who is saved does not take a part in the lake of fire. That's, cl that's clear in scripture. It just said that there. But let's look at some verses that can maybe better help us better understand this um, on why God is judging people if he's going to put them somewhere for eternity. If he's going to give them all the same punishment, why judge them? Well, let's look at some verses. and Let's look at Romans 2. I don't want this to be a long sermon, but I also don't want to not touch on things, so we'll just see where we go. Romans 2, verse 12, says in verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. What that means is that if you never knew the books of the Bible, doesn't make you any less of a sinner. You're still going to sin, and you're still going to get a punishment for that sin. But it also is saying that a group of people do not have the law. Therefore, that's that group of people that were not judged according to the books. That's the group of people that was judged according to their works. Let's keep going. Um, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. You see that? See how that lines up with Revelation 20? How those people who d sinned in the law, who had the books, they get judged by the books. That makes sense. For... I'm just painting a, a picture of the, of the New Earth very quickly. Um, 21, verse 23 says, and this, uh, let's read verse 24. And the nations of them which saved shall walk in the light of it. So we went over that. But it says, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So that means that there's kings outside the city ruling over different nations. Some probably in the, you know, some probably ruling over those nations that which were saved, but some kings, like I said, I believe that the unsaved are now on the new earth, um, that they had their portion in the lake of fire, and now they're on the new earth, not near the city of God, and they're not allowed to enter it, obviously, and they're not allowed to enter it, obviously, but being ruled over by the saints. It wouldn't really make sense if you have such a small group. So obviously we know that people who work hard for the Lord are going to be the kings, right? It, that's their reward. They get to rule over many nations. There's many parables about that. Um, and those who just remain saved, you get to be in the nations of them which are saved. You get to enter the kingdom of God and leave through it. But it wouldn't make sense that you have so many, you know, so many kings and prophets and all that just ruling over saved people they must be ruling over the unsaved also because remember god creates a whole think of how big the earth is it says and i saw the earth and it's not new in the sense that it's different it's just redone like revamped like when god creates something new he just he just fixes it like if um if there was a patch of of 
of ground with no grass and he made it new, it would be the same patch of ground but with grass. So the, the new nation itself has no sea. It's huge. The earth is massive. Think of how much um, earth there is in the world. There is so much earth in the world and we have 7 billion people inhabiting it. But even more than earth, we have sea. We have more sea than earth. Right. So now there's no sea. What would be the purpose of having that much earth unless there was that much people to inhabit it? There's so much, there's so much more space now, so much more room because all the people throughout history are going to be on it, mm -hmm. on the new earth, everywhere. No more sea. So much more land to be inhabited. Need so many more kings to rule over all of that space. Tons of kings. Um, let's look at Luke 13. I know this is a meaty sermon. I know it's going to take time to understand. I'm just preaching it so you have an idea when you read you have a reference point to come to. You could come listen to this again. Luke 13, verse 23, it says, And then one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able, when once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and he began to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know ye not whence ye are. Then ye shall begin to say, We have eat and drunk in thy presence, and now is taught in our streets. But ye shall say, I tell you, I know you not. Uh, once ye are, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. So notice he's saying that people are going to come sit with him in his kingdom, that four square kingdom, and they're coming from the east, the west, the north, and the south. He wouldn't reference that if that was just a nation right outside the kingdom. He wouldn't say coming from the north when it's like six feet outside the kingdom. He's saying they're coming from the north, the east, the west, and the south because they're coming from far off places, these kings, and coming down to come eat with Jesus because they're saved. They're, they're the kings that are spoken about in Revelation. The kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. They're those kings. Allow me to give you a quick explanation on how this documentary came about. About one year ago, I was led by the Lord to start researching history. In my mind, it was for the purpose of explaining the book of Daniel in depth and the kingdoms described in past prophecy. What I did not know was that the Lord had another purpose which is truly life-changing. To begin, I would like to propose to you some questions. Throughout the scriptures, has there ever been a time in biblical history where the people of earth did not hear from God for thousands of years? When you read prophecy on the end times, does it seem as if the words are specifically speaking to the people alive during the time of Jesus and his apostles? When you first found out that the rulers of this world had lied pertaining to the things of this earth, such as evolution, the Big Bang, did you ever wonder if there was anything else you weren't told? Through the Bible, I will answer these questions. It has been years of dedicated research, and I promised myself and the Lord I would not present it until I had the proof from God's Word and could paint a clear picture 
from start to finish. Very recently, the Lord has given me that clear picture, and he has sewed it all together. I have compiled all the verses I was studying, wrote them out, and will eventually explain the entire Bible start to finish. But in order to keep my preaching twice per week with this new knowledge, I need to explain what the Lord has revealed. This short video is an overview of a new biblical timeline. I am using a small portion of the hundreds of verses and historical references because I need to summarize this doctrine before delving into it during my sermons. This overview will have four short parts consisting of the world that then was, the Antichrist, the Rapture and Millennium, and lastly, where we are now. Part 1. The World That Then Was I will open with this verse. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from beginning to end. No carnal man understands what is going on. It takes a strong spirit and faith to understand that Satan and his ministers have lied to us about our world. And now I will show you through the scriptures a deception that is the greatest lie ever told. Throughout my studies, I began noticing things about the New Testament that seemed contrary to popular belief. It seemed as if Jesus was speaking in a way that foreshadowed their present world ending very soon. Such as in Matthew 24, when describing the end times, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Okay, I thought, maybe he meant the generations until the new earth. But then I noticed this, Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. He is indicating once the gospel is preached through the world, the end of the world comes at that time. In Romans 1.8, Paul says, First, I thank my God, Jesus Christ, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. There are many instances through the book of Acts and through the epistles where the Lord says that the whole world has heard the gospel. In Romans 16, the Holy Ghost says through Paul that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been made known to all nations of the earth. And in 1 Corinthians 10.11, it says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The Bible says are come. It does not say is to come, but are, as in they will see the end of the world. Remember, once it's preached to all nations at that time, then shall the end come. This is why 1 Peter 4 says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Part 2. The Antichrist Many today are looking for the Antichrist, as if he's hiding somewhere in the background of society. However, the Bible makes it clear all will know him even before he declares himself to be God. I began to ask myself, what if we should be looking for the Antichrist during our time? What if the Christians of Jesus' day were the ones who should have been looking? It began to make sense that Jesus and the apostles strongly encouraged their generation to watch and be ready. And now, after much research, I believe that they found the Antichrist. But not they only, the whole world found him. 
And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. 1 John is one of the last books of the Bible for a reason. I believe it was written later, during the time of a particular Caesar of Rome. John 12, 30 and 31 says, Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. You may hear these verses and say, aren't they talking about Jesus defeating Satan at the cross? This actually is not true because Satan still reigns through the Antichrist. How could he reign if he was cast out? He is not cast out at the cross, but he is cast out at another time during the millennium. Now let's take a look at the Caesar I mentioned above. His name is Caesar Nero. If you did not know, Caesar Nero was a Roman emperor during the time of the apostles. And one important thing to note is that Caesar Nero's name, both in Hebrew and in Greek, adds up to 666. The reason this is possible is both Hebrew and Greek are numerical languages, which means each letter in their alphabet corresponds with a number. And his number is the number of a man, and it adds up to 666. So why is Rome important? Well, we see why in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 says, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them a little horn, before whom there were three of the horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The Bible talks about a fourth beast, and later on in the chapter we learn from verse 17 that is the kingdom, and one of his horns is a king. Within this fourth kingdom, something major happens, and that is part three, the rapture and millennium. This section, like all others, will have much more teaching and a documentary of its own. I have already gone over the tribulation period, and I have chosen not to delve too much into the rapture, because once you understand the tribulation and the millennium, the rapture and wrath of God is easier to decipher. According to the Bible, after the great tribulation, God resurrected the saints that had died, and with the ones that were still alive, he took them up with him into the clouds. He then gave them new eternal bodies and proceeded to pour out his wrath upon earth. It is the same as we have always thought, just on a different timeline, a biblical timeline. So instead of the tribulation being now, it was actually then. However, to make sure I explain the sections of utmost importance, I need to show you something about Rome that leads to the millennium, which is the destruction of Babylon. Because we were all trying to fit the end times into our current timeline, myself included, we ended up missing a resounding sign that Babylon had already come. Let's take a look at Rome and see if it lines up with scriptures on Mystery Babylon. We see that the great whore of Revelation sits upon seven mountains, as shown in Revelation 17.9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth. Rome fits this description perfectly, being that it does sit on seven mountains called the seven hills of Rome. Now I had been asked if this was the location of Babylon in the past, but at that time they were asking if it applied to the Vatican. And I knew the Vatican could not be Babylon, 
because it was not a physical nation or kingdom, so I simply tabled the conclusion. However, I now understand its true application, which is that this truth needs to be applied to the kingdom upon which the Vatican stands, which was ancient Rome. Now, we see in Revelation 18.8, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. The thing I want to point out about Babylon is the fact that it is utterly burned with fire. One thing we can learn about the Roman Empire's capital was that during the reign of Nero, it literally burned to the ground with fire. According to the world's so-called historians, no one knows how the fire started. But thanks to the Lord, we know it was him who sent his angel to burn it. Even the world says that it continued for nine days and nine nights due to a strong wind. But before you look into the dates and timing of these events, there's one thing I want you to note about history. As with everything else in the world, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Well, actually, a mountain of salt. What I mean is, the Bible has to be your source of history, truth, and all things you believe. If you, in your research, see some timing of things documented differently, like a year or event that seems slightly out of order, just go with the Bible. Only use stories from history simply as supporting evidence, as I am trying to do in this video. Now, what about the millennium? I really don't want to go too in-depth on this subject because it's something that needs to be explained linearly and with much scripture, but I will briefly tell you what I believe so you are not unaware going forward. I believe that after the wrath of God, Jesus made war with the Antichrist and killed all who opposed him. Revelation 19 verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. In the last three verses, it says the Antichrist gathers his armies together and makes war with Jesus, and is cast into the lake of fire. Then at the same time, Satan is bound with a great chain for the duration of the millennial reign. This millennial reign is where Jesus rules on earth with the saints for 1,000 years, and they rule over those that were kept alive. These people are people that were not part of the military of the Antichrist, nor against Christians, just regular people who did not die during the wrath of God. Zechariah 14 verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There are many verses about what life is like during the millennium, but I will cover those verses on this topic in the future. Now you may be saying, how did Jesus reign on earth for 1,000 years without us knowing? Well, that one is actually easier to answer. Let me ask you this. After you discovered any major lie of Satan and the powers that be, did you look back and say, how on earth could I have believed such a great lie? The lies we once believed, like evolution, the Big Bang, or things pertaining to this earth, always seem so pale in comparison to the truth after they manifest. But through deception, our eyes are blinded and we cannot see the light. If you tell someone from birth that they came from a monkey, that evolved from a fish, that was created by an ancient bacteria, and everyone around them confirms it, of course they will believe it, no matter how crazy it may now seem. It is a simple yet genius process. History as we know it is based upon a similar method. If you didn't know, most, if not all, non-biblical history is based upon the writings of one or two worldly historians from a certain era. People today literally write thousands of books and curriculums 
all based upon the writings of a few individuals from a given time period. And then they make fun of Christians for believing the writings of God. It is true madness and hypocrisy when you look into it. With that said, these so-called historians describe a period of time called the medieval era, and they say it lasted 1,000 years. This era is what has been deemed the Dark Ages, and they call it the Dark Ages because they say it had no scientific or cultural advancement for an entire millennium. So you mean for 1,000 years people focused upon worship, they didn't normalize every wicked imagination, and they didn't create technology to captivate people in sin? That doesn't sound like a very dark age to me. They also lie and go on to say that this millennium was full of war and disease, which is actually the exact opposite of the biblical millennium. Contrary to their claims, during this era, we see major castles being built, minus the newly added Catholic idols, cities fully developed, and the discovery of what seems to be new continents, unknown by the old world. But more on that in the future. They place the beginning of this era around 500 AD. AD in Latin signifies the amount of years after the birth of the Lord. This era supposedly lasted until the 1500s, which is conveniently located in their timeline after the proposed fall of the Roman Empire. They generously gave themselves another 430 years of reign. However, the Bible states that the Fourth Empire, the Kingdom of the Antichrist, will be destroyed, and I believe the years 70 to 500 never actually happened, nor the years of 1500 to approximately 1750. So you may be asking, what about all those people and kingdoms that we read about through those times? Well, similar to fiction novels, they are stories that have either been copied from previous events and renamed, or they are fabricated altogether. As I said earlier, they don't have to do much to fabricate it. All of that history comes from the period of time after Christ up until the late 1700s, and is pretty much only corroborated by the writings of one or two individuals for every couple hundred years. If you actually look into the so-called historians for those 18 centuries, they all happen to be from the Catholic Church. This gives the Vatican full control over what happened in history, who it happened to, and when it happened. If you haven't noticed by now, they are attempting to renew the worship of the previous Antichrist, which makes sense considering all the supposed saints they worship look like Romans, and even their rendition of Jesus looks very similar to a thinner narrow. It's in the Gospels that... I believe will help you to see and understand the difference between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels. So the first difference I want to cover though is going to be the spirits. So let's look at, open up to, we're going to start in Matthew. So in these, in some of these things that we'll, we'll be talking about, they're not in the Gospel of John. One of them is unclean spirits or spirits of devils. And we're going to start with Matthew. So open up to Matthew 8. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Matthew 10. And we'll just read verse 1. So one thing you'll notice is there will be a reoccurring theme between 
these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will be a set alone. And then occasionally, you're going to see things from Luke that align with John. And I'm going to explain why. So I believe that John is a complete account of Jesus and just his words, everything. You don't have to, like, decipher if someone's talking and is it the same person? Did their name switch or anything like that? Same with Matthew and Mark. I believe that these are both true accounts of the Antichrist. And it will speak of Jesus' disciples in the book of John as with their name there. You know, Judas, Peter, John, same thing here, Matthew, Mark. The only gospel that I didn't really want to touch yet was Luke, but I'm going to do it anyways, and we'll get into it, and I'll show you why. I believe that Luke is the account of Jesus's, so Jesus's Judas. So I believe that Luke follows the ministry of Jesus using the perspective of Judas. I know that's a lot to take in, but let's just look at it as we go forth. Throughout the Bible, Judas is viewed as a thief and someone who betrays Jesus. But if hypothetically Judas was the Antichrist, you know, the one that was going to call himself Christ, then he would be able to do wonders. So in the future, not today, today will be simple, I will show you things that Judas is doing in the Gospel of John and from both Gospels, from both perspectives. But for now, just want to keep it simple. Let's pretend I didn't say that to you yet. I just need you to know it before we go forward, and you'll see why at the end. Let's just pretend that these, well, this is true. These three Gospels are pro-Antichrist. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John is pro-Jesus. Just like, all right, so I didn't want to leave Sunday morning today sermon. on. So from now on, every night at 8 o'clock, I'll do a short video explaining more of what I spoke about in my sermon this morning. Um, it'll be labeled by part, so you'll be able to follow along with it, you know, part one, part two, part three. But today will probably be a bit longer, only because it's the second one I'm talking about, and I need to cover a couple things, a lot of questions that I'm sure you're having that I had when I first started studying this out, and I want to cover it all right now. So... <clears throat> If you're watching it live or you're watching it later, grab a Bible so you can see these verses. I wrote the verses on the board. I'll put a picture of this on the thumbnail so you can see it um, in, after. And I will also, I also wrote, you know, important parts of the verse so they're here, so you have them. But let's just start with, the big question, 
how is there two Jesuses, right? So how would there be two Jesuses if, you know, the name Jesus isn't really mentioned again in the Bible? Well, it's not that it's not mentioned again. It's just you think it's the same person, just like I did forever, right? The whole Christian life. Let's look at some examples of people with multiple names, right? People who have identical names that are different people. You have in Luke 6, 16, we don't really need to turn there. I'm just referencing it so people can look at it. In the same verse, you have Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot. In the same group of apostles with the same name, right? So that's a normal thing. In the book of John, you have Judas, Simon's son. So you, you may be saying, okay, it's one of these two, which I too believe that it is one of these two. But the name Judas occurs throughout the Bible often. And it's not an odd thing that two people have the same name, right? You also have John, the brother of James. He's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You also have John the Baptist. And then, we'll get to this in a second, you have John, surnamed Mark. That's in Acts. Um, I don't know if I wrote that down. If not, I'll find it. But John, surnamed Mark, is in the book of Acts. So again, three people, same name. That's a normal thing, and it's totally normal if, from one perspective, someone, like, if you had Judas, this isn't happening, but let's say you had Judas Iscariot writing a book. He's not going to call Judas, the brother of James, Judas, because it would be confusing for your perspective if he's writing about himself, calling himself Judas, and then also calling him Judas. He's just going to call him his other name, whether it be his surname or a name that means the same thing. Like people call Bob and Rob, Robert and Bob, we know automatically that that's this, that can be used interchangeably. But if you are not from this place or you don't look at lineages, you wouldn't know that those names are interchangeable. But when I started studying genealogies, just like the epistle says, um, not giving heed to endless genealogies which minister questions they don't want you to question things because they don't want you to figure these things out so there are names just like I said Robert and Bob right two totally different names in someone who doesn't isn't from America or understand English when they're looking at it, they would be like, this one starts with an R, this one starts with a B, why are they the same thing? It's two different amounts of letters. It's normal to have a name that means the same name. Like Judas can also mean John. But they keep it consistent within one book so that you understand who they're talking about. So that's just to show you that it's possible, because remember, I know this is a lot to take in. I know, like, I've been studying this out 
I think I mentioned it to Brother Sebastian like months and months ago when he first came here that I thought that the Old Testament was a much shorter timeline. A lot of the books that we think are happening later are happening now. Oh, well, not now, in our, not in our time, but are happening when we're reading them in the end prophets. Some of the beginning things are also happening in those end prophets. And I mentioned it months and months ago. So I've been studying it, you know, I read for 10 hours a day just studying that out, writing all these names out, writing out different places. If you've seen any of my recent documentaries, you'll see how you can go from one name and follow it all the way back to the top, see where they're from, see what location it is. And eventually, I came to realize what I preached about this morning. So this is just an introduction, just so you can see our people are like flabbergasted at the fact that there could be two Jesuses. People are like flabbergasted at the fact that there could be two Jesuses. The Antichrist is meant to come in the place of Christ. If they have the same name, that is perfect, right? That's perfect for Satan's plan. It allows you to just believe in, think you're believing in Jesus when you're believing in Jesus. If you have two friends named Mark, you can hate one Mark, don't hate anyone, but I'm saying, you can hate one Mark and love the other Mark, they're both still named Mark. But it doesn't change the fact that they're two different people. So let's look at something here. Acts 5.37. If you have a Bible, go to it. Acts 5.37. I'm going to read it out loud. The chief priests are discussing something about the fact that all these apostles are creating an uproar in their city. And it says in verse 37, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Who's from Galilee? Who would the chief priests be calling? Because remember, Judas doesn't always mean bad thing. Judas is just a name. Judas is just a, a simple name. It just so happens that the person who is surnamed Iscariot is also a bad person. It doesn't mean that all Judases are bad. It just means what perspective are you looking at the Bible from? If you're friends with Judas, you're going to think Judas is good. If you don't like Judas, then you're going to think Judas is bad. That's what the whole Bible is. It's not that the scriptures are all a lie. It's that you need to change your perspective and understand good versus evil. I'm going to explain the beginning, you know, um, the darkness and the light, things that will, things that I've spoken about before, but now with this understanding, they're actually... All righty. We are finished listening to <laughs> Tyler Doka. Um, I don't have it in me to call him pastor. I just don't. Um, and I don't want to be too judgmental and call him names. So I'm just going to call him Mr. Doka or Tyler or something like that. But all right, let's go over the three different things that he has taught over the past three or four years. All right. The false 
teachings of Tyler Doka began with his teaching um, on what is really, there's no other uh, way around it. There's nothing else you can call it. His first false teaching was on the lake of fire, hell. And he was teaching a form of, uh, I mean, the, he was teaching purgatory. <laughs> That's all it is, plain and simple. What he said was that during the millennium, you would, the, the, or after the millennium, when the new heaven and the new earth were created, that the people who were in the lake of fire would be released from the lake of fire and they would be on the earth. He said a lot of, of other things like um, Christians would rule and reign over them, um, but he, uh, I thought it was kind of funny that he began his teaching on proving that the lake of fire was not eternal for the lost in the book of Matthew. Um, and then he ended the clip that I made with the book of Luke. He, um, he went and he read the parable of Jesus teaching that it was Jesus teaching in both Matthew and in Luke regarding the judgment and the lake of fire. But as his false teaching progressed through the years, his newest false teaching that we looked at Wednesday and saw again today at the... Uh, the end of the clips was about the Gospels themselves and he now teaches that it's not even Jesus in the book of Matthew and Luke. That's not Jesus teaching in Matthew and Luke. But he uh, went also to the book of Revelation and for time's sake, I'm not going to touch, I'm, I'm not going to look too in-depth at his first teaching on um, purgatory because most of you that will see this know and understand that uh, purgatory is a Catholic doctrine. It's not even something that is taught in um, Christianity. There is not a um, evangelical or Protestant form or denomination in the Christian church that teaches purgatory. That is 
completely Catholic, and therefore I'm not going to spend a, a whole lot of time proving that purgatory is false because, you know, the scriptures are very, very clear that hell is everlasting. It does not end. And even if it did have an end for those human beings who reject Christ, the only way, and I don't believe this, do not misunderstand me, but the only way I have ever, or the only thing I've ever heard anyone teach that they had any kind of biblical leg to stand on as far as hell goes and it not being eternal for um, human beings is that they're burnt up completely and that um, the fire itself is eternal but that when people are cast into the lake of fire that they burn right up. I don't believe that, but that is the the only thing that I've ever heard anyone in the Protestant or evangelical church teach that they can even come close to having scripture to back it up. But purgatory, I mean, it, there is absolutely no biblical precedent for it at all. So we're going to move on to his next false teaching, which is the teaching he did on the end times. And that's actually... A newer teaching um, it, it was about a, a year apart from the first uh, clip that was in the video um, the portion of his documentary on the end times that I played was I think from two years ago and in that video clip he is teaching a hybrid form of preterism. And in his hybrid form of preterism, he says that um, the book of Revelation and, uh, you know, the, the, the tribulation and all that goes along with it was fulfilled in the first century by 70 AD. And in that particular video, he says that Nero, the Emperor Nero, was the Antichrist. And, and all of this are things that preterists believe. He says that um, he gives a lot of reasons why Nero was the emperor. Some are in the clip I played. There are others that I didn't play. I, I stopped it before it got that far so that I could try to cover everything 
you know, a, a small portion of everything he talked about in that documentary. But he, the the biggest thing that he said in the clip I played that was his reasoning for Nero being the Antichrist was that his name um, in both Hebrew and Greek equaled 666. Well, you know, I'm not going to uh, touch on that a whole lot except to say this, that first of all, even if that is the case, and it is, um, Hebrew and Greek are both uh, numerical languages, and uh, Nero's name uh, does equal 666. You can get 666 from his name in both languages. However, 666 is not the mark of the beast. It's not the number of the beast. That's not what scripture says in Greek or in English. It says 600, three score, and six, or 666. There's a difference in three sixes and 666. And, you know, I've heard Dr. Michael Heiser give a very, very good rebuttal of that particular uh, portion of preterism that preterists use for Nero being the Antichrist. And uh, I think I'm going to um, put the link to that video in the description because it will it'll help anyone who is wondering about that. But the next thing that he says is that everything that the book of Revelation talks about, like I said, he said it, it ended and was fulfilled by 70 AD. And he believes that the Dark Ages, which he says are about a thousand years that are from the year 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., that between those periods of time, that thousand years, that is the time that he believes is the millennium, or was the millennium, whatever, or is the millennium, because he believes that we're still in the millennium. And he, <laughs> oh my goodness, the things he says are so outlandish. It's, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad if so many people were not falling for this. But he said that from the year 70 AD to 500 AD never happened. Those years did not exist. Well, there's a 
very big problem with that, and that can be proven false very easily. Something else he said was that um, all of the the writers and historians who wrote anything during any of those time periods all came from the Catholic Church. Well, unfortunately for him and his doctrine, the Catholic Church did not even exist during the majority of the time that he's talking about. The Catholic Church did not exist for the first three to four centuries. It, 300 years after the time that he says um, the book of Revelation and all of biblical prophecy was fulfilled, 70 A.D., 300 years after that, you have all of that time where the Catholic Church did not even exist yet. That is the anti-Nicene period. Now, the Catholic Church was not... Now, Catholic just means universal for anyone who doesn't know now. When we talk about the Roman Catholic Church today that is led by the Pope, that is um, something else. Any mention of the Catholic Church in the original uh, church creeds that came before the Council of Nicaea, and even from the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, when it says Catholic in the creed, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic there just means universal. The universal church is what it means. Now, before the Council of Nicaea, you have what's known as the Anti-Nicene Period. And the Anti-Nicene Period is from the end of the first century with the you know the the beginning of the second century through until the council of nicaea all right during that time period you have what is known as the anti-nicene fathers who were the writers the christian writers who were literally the disciples of the apostles, beginning with two direct disciples of the apostle John, being Ignatius and Polycarp. Now, both of these men were disciples of the apostle John. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. The bishop of Smyrna 
the church of Smyrna that Jesus talks about and John writes about in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, you have the book of Smyrna. So, the and the angel of the church of Smyrna is the bishop of the church of Smyrna. So, Polycarp is actually in the book of Revelation. Jesus has John write a letter to him. Well, we have writings from Polycarp and from Ignatius and from Polycarp's disciple, Irenaeus. There are many anti-Nicene writers. You've got Tertullian, Origen, um, Justin Martyr. There are so many anti-Nicene writers proving that the second, third, and fourth centuries definitely existed. And then you have the writers after. I mean, Eusebius. Eusebius gives the history of the church. But Eusebius was not a Catholic in the form, you know, like a, what we think of as a Catholic today. You know, the Roman Catholic. He... he was a part of what would eventually become the Roman Catholic Church. But he was very, very far from like someone that would have been a writer in the dark ages that he was talking about, you know. And all of these things that he says did not happen during the Dark Ages, like the Crusades, they definitely did happen. There are many, many um, historians and authors, scholars who have written about the things that took place during the Crusades, I mean, the Dark Ages, including the Crusades, who were not Catholic. The things that he says in that documentary, and I've seen the entire thing, are so ludicrous that I, I truly do not understand how anybody can put any stock into what this guy says. But one of the biggest proofs that what he says about the end times and the millennium and everything in Revelation being fulfilled by 70 AD, the biggest problem and the biggest proof that that is wrong is this. The book of Revelation did not even exist in 70 AD. It, wasn't, it hadn't even been written yet. So there's no way that Nero could have been the Antichrist. There's no way that everything that the book of Revelation talks about 
could have happened and been finished by 70 AD because it had not been written yet. The book of Revelation was not written until around 90 AD. At the end of the first century, during uh, the time when this guy says the time didn't even exist yet. Or, or that not yet, but that the time period is a lie, that it didn't happen. He says that um, there are 400 years that never happened. Well, there are so many problems with the things that he says that I could do a whole show just on that one clip. But for time's sake, I'm going to move on to the final and most heretical of his doctrines. And that is that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not about Jesus, but instead about the Antichrist. And again, his newest doctrine contradicts what he taught in the past. Now, he said in the part before that, that Nero was the Antichrist. And he gave many proofs for why Nero was the Antichrist. Well, his newest teaching is that Judas Iscariot is the Antichrist and that the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke are all about Judas Iscariot. That he's only called Jesus so that people do not get confused between the Antichrist and Jesus Christ. I said Wednesday, and I want to reiterate it today, that God is not the author of confusion, friends. Brother Phil Baker wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And it's one of the best books that you can ever invest in as far as Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. And I would really recommend anyone who doesn't already have the book to get it and read it. The simplest and best way to study the scriptures is to take the Bible, especially the New Testament, as literal as possible. That means even the parables and symbology, you take the parables as parables. 
take them literally as well. Now, you can understand the meanings of them, but you understand that they're parables, and you understand that the symbolism is using symbols, and you also understand that when the Bible says something clear, like uh, forever, it means forever. One of the things that he taught in the first lie that he was teaching about uh, hell not being everlasting is that when the Bible says everlasting, it doesn't always mean everlasting. But that's not true. When the Bible says everlasting, it means everlasting. Whenever we start putting our own interpretations on the Word of God, then we're no longer, we no longer have truth. We have gone from truth to lies. We can't just make the Word of God mean whatever we want it to mean. We cannot interpret it however we want to interpret it. Now, I want to uh, look really quick at some proofs that all four Gospels are about Jesus Christ and that Judas Iscariot was a disciple of Jesus Christ and that none of the Gospels at all are about the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, the only time the Antichrist is in any of the Gospels is when Jesus talks about him. Now, the very first scripture I want to look at is Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit, and it's capitalized, so that Spirit is capitalized, so it's the Holy Spirit. He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, why would the devil tempt the Antichrist? wouldn't happen. And if for some reason the devil did tempt the Antichrist, then it would have ended a lot differently, but this is how it actually ended. It says that when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the Son of God, so he is acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, not the Antichrist. But he says, If thou be the Son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up to a 
to the holy into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and he said unto him if thou be the son of god then cast thyself down for it is written he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And he saith unto him, All these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. If it was the Antichrist here in the book of Matthew, then he would have fallen down and worshipped him right then and became the Antichrist. He would have been given all the nations of the world, but that's not what happened. Then Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, there you go right there. That's all the proof we need. There's many, many, many other proofs in the book of Matthew, but that's the only proof we need that the book of Matthew is about Jesus Christ. Um, the book of Mark is also about Jesus Christ and there are examples exactly like the one I just gave in all four of the Gospels there is absolutely zero credibility for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to be written by or about Judas Iscariot However, his proof for how or, or believing this was from the book of Acts, chapter 5. Now, of course, you can take something out of context to make all kinds of ridiculous doctrines, and that's exactly what he did. If you remember, he said, we're that um, he wanted to start with a verse, I think he said uh, 37, yes, he wanted to start with verse 37, and that is the only scripture he read. He said, after this, after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Okay, well, let's read that scripture in context and see if there's any way that that scripture proves or even alludes to Judas Iscariot being the Judas that was talked about here or being... Jesus that is talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All right, let's begin with verse 1. It says, 
But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. All right, I want to go down a little further, because um, we can still get the context without... Uh, reading the entire chapter. Alright. Um, okay, let's... Um, Let's start with start with verse twenty two, okay? Well, we'll start with uh Verse 18, 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. 
the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart, and they took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutius, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What Acts 5 is saying in verse 37 is this uh, one of the the Sadducees um, was named uh, let's see yeah something I want Gamaliel he was a doctor of the law he was a Pharisee not a Sadducee I'm sorry and he had a reputation among the people and he commanded that they put the the apostles away a short space and he said to them that they should take heed and not touch these men because and what he says next is proving that what the Gospels are about is Jesus and not the Antichrist. But what he says here was that there was a man, and, and he doesn't just name Judas, by the way. He says in verse 36, he says, there was a man named Thutius, or Thutus, Theodus, however you um, pronounce it, who rose up, boasting himself to be somebody, 
who a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain. And after this rose up Judas of Galilee and drew him away and drew away much people after him and he also perished. It's only Jesus that it says that he was that the apostles told the chief priests that was they put Jesus to death on a tree. They hung him on a tree. And I, I point that out because Another thing that this guy says that I didn't put in with these clips is that he's got a teaching called the two crucifixions. And in this teaching, he says that both Jesus was crucified and Judas, being the Antichrist, was crucified. And he says that that's why you have different accounts of the crucifixion that are seen from the different Gospels. And he says that Judas, who this guy um, Gamaliel mentions from Galilee, was Jesus, because it says that... um, this Judas guy was slain. However, or it doesn't even say slain. It doesn't even say that he was put to death. It just says he perished. And because it says he perished, he says that that is the Antichrist. However, there's a big problem with that. We all know. We all know. I mean, even this guy cannot argue that Jesus was put to death in 70 AD, right? Well, he said earlier that the book of John, or the book of First John, was one of the last books written. And the reason for that um, was that it talks about the Antichrist and that it had to be written about 70 AD. And, um, well... If that's the case, if going by his logic, Jesus was put to death around uh, 33 AD. And so Judas, uh, I mean, the Bible's very, very clear how Judas was killed. He hung himself. I mean, he didn't, he didn't get put to death. He was not crucified. But what this guy teaches is that the Bible lies. And the way he justifies the Bible lying is by saying that, and he said it Wednesday, I don't know if you heard it today, because I don't know if I added that clip in today, because I was trying to... um, shorten the video for time's sake but what he says is that it's not that um, the Bible is just lying all the way through it or that the Bible is wrong he says that 
we have to be able to understand when the Bible is giving us the perspective of good and when it's giving us a perspective of evil. He says we have to be able to know the difference between good and evil. <laughs> and he also said that um, the biblical authors don't want us to search out the genealogies of Jesus or anybody because they don't want us to figure out that Jesus is uh what's he what I'm trying to remember how he puts it. He don't want us to figure out that there's two Jesus, that the apostles and biblical authors do not want us to figure out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not talking about Jesus Christ. Another thing he says, and I don't think that this clip was in there today, but it was in there Wednesday. He says that Jesus and Satan or Lucifer, or more accurately, the Antichrist, um, but I think he did say Lucifer, are brothers, that they are both begotten of the Father. But the reason Jesus was able to be the Messiah and the reason that he is our Savior is because he kept the commandments of God perfectly. He kept the law perfectly. That's what he said. He said that both Jesus and Satan are the Son of God. They're brothers. That's exactly what he said. He said they are brothers. And that the reason Jesus is the Messiah is because he kept the law and commandments of God perfectly. I am going to have to do a third episode where I do not play any video or audio from uh, Mr. Doka and I just go through the Word of God and prove the things that he teaches are false. I'm going to just have to uh, tell everyone what he teaches and refer people back to Wednesday's program and today's program so they can see and hear it for themselves and then I'll go into the scriptures and prove more thoroughly that absolutely everything he teaches is completely wrong and just fueled by the spirit of Antichrist. The last scriptures that we're going to look at today before we close out are going to be from the uh, epistle of let's see first John we're going to look at first John because um that is the epistle that he quoted in the video I played earlier and um 
what he said was that you know he was given so much um, authority to First John, and there is, I mean, it, it deserves that authority. However, what he said was that he used the scripture here from First John chapter two, where it says, uh, "Little children, it is the last time." And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, I want to point out that the scripture he quoted is actually talking about him. And he doesn't realize it. Because if you go down just a couple of more verses, this is what it says. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. No lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Now, I can assure you that well, let me say this. Let me read this last verse. John says, These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even... As it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So, this guy, this Tyler Doka, he's the type, he's the one trying to seduce people. He no longer has the truth. He has not abided in the truth that he heard from the beginning. If he had abided in the truth which he heard from the beginning, then the truth would have remained in him and he also would have continued in the Son and the Father, but he did not. He is now rejecting the truth and teaching a lie. He is rejecting the Son. He now 
calls Jesus the Antichrist. Oh, sure, he admits that the Gospel of John is talking about Jesus Christ, but he calls Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke the Antichrist. That is denying Jesus as the Messiah. That is the spirit of Antichrist, friends. It's the spirit that is fueling this guy's teachings. It is the spirit that has deceived him. And it is the spirit that is leading him to teach others this lie. These lies, as you've seen, I showed you three years worth of false teachings today. Three different false teachings from three different time periods. The last one about <laughs> the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke being about the Antichrist is his most recent false teaching. And that just shows that when you do not abide in the truth, that your confusion and your false doctrine just gets more and more confused and more and more false. Friends, I said this Wednesday. I'm going to say it again. This is what I'm going to close with. And that is asking that you would please pray for Tyler Doka. Please pray for those at Pillar of Truth Christian Church that they would see these things for the lies they are and that they would not be deceived by them. That they would get out of there and that he would repent of his false teachings. Please pray that the spirit fueling him, the spirit behind him be bound and that no one that comes across this teaching on YouTube would be deceived by it because there are going to be both believers and non-believers that come across this thing because these videos are being pushed constantly by YouTube because of how many views they have and because of how many followers he has. So please Pray for him and for his congregation, but also pray against his teaching. We have got to go to war, friends. We battle not against flesh and blood, but we battle, trust me. So I am asking you to go to war with me. Let's war in the spirit against these forces of darkness pushing this Antichrist agenda. Brothers and sisters, 
that's all the time that we have today. So for Kingdom Productions and Return of the Historic Faith, I am Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying until next time, God bless you all, grace and peace.